Have you ever known someone who seems to be teetering on the edge, or maybe even someone who seems to have walked away from that which they once professed? How do you process those things? Is it possible to lose your salvation? What do you think? Are you just one sin or one bad day away from losing your eternal hope or from being cast out of God's presence? If you've ever wondered about these things, today's sermon from John 6 may provide some encouraging answers. You know, a Christian, a Christian can lose all sorts of things. Christian can lose their car keys. Christian can lose their job. And there's virtually nothing that time cannot take away from us. But for our purposes this morning, the theological question is this. Of all the things a Christian can lose, can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian lose their eternal hope? How would you answer that? How would you answer that? Have you ever thought about it much? Have you ever known someone who seems to be teetering on the edge, or maybe even someone who seems to have walked away from that which they once professed. How do you process those things? Well, some people don't process it well. Even some good, solid believers have incredible anxiety over the prospect of this, the prospect that they are one sin, one error, one bad day away from falling out of God's grace, from facing condemnation. Again, how do you answer these questions? Well, Scripture answers it straightforwardly. God says, if you could lose your salvation, rest assured, you would. If it were possible for you to lose your salvation by some error on your part, rest assured, you had already done it. If you could truly lose that which has been given you, entrusted in you, written upon your heart, if it was up to you to hold on to it, you had already lost it. If your eternal future rests upon your narrow theological shoulders. Again, you would have fumbled that ball long ago. But what we see in today's text is wonderful news in light of that. What we see in this morning's text is that your fate, your future as a believer, if indeed you are one, it doesn't rest solely on you. Good news is that this incredibly precious gift that you've been given through the spirit that's within you, through the salvation that's been promised to you, doesn't rest on your fickle strength to retain and hold on to. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus himself, in today's text, takes ownership over all of it. There is a role we play, and yet Jesus himself is the guarantor. Jesus himself holds on to his things. Jesus himself takes ownership of this matter, and he says something that should give us great comfort. Specifically in today's text, he flatly declares that of all the Father has given him, he says this, I will not, I will not, I will not lose a single soul. Of all the Father has given me, of all that have been converted, of all that's heart's been changed, of all that the Spirit has entered in, how many will I lose? None. That's Christ's answer. Christ takes ownership of our salvation in clear and ambiguous terms, and I trust that we are going to see that in today's study. All right, if you would, let's look at verses 35 and 36. I know they're printed in your bulletin. If you want to just track with me, we're going to start there and then work our way through the passage. Okay, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said this to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All right. 
Let's again set the context here. Here Jesus has recently been in one place along the Sea of Galilee, and now he's somewhere else. He's recently been afar, he's crossed the water, he's ended up in Capernaum, and people have followed him. People have chased him down because he is getting a reputation as a miracle man. Because of the free loaves and fish and the like, people are following him. The people who are gathered around Jesus in this context, the bulk of them are going to leave Jesus by the end of the chapter. If you look towards the very end, you'll see this, that Jesus is really standing almost alone with a handful of his disciples. The majority of the people who were coming before him at this interval were only interested in this Christ for what he would give them in the sense of material goods. I tell you, that is a problem in the greater present church as well. It's a different point, but for our purposes here, Jesus looks around and he knows that most of the folks, they want bread, but they want physical bread. They want to be filled with rye or wheat or pumpernickel or whatever he had to offer, but they did not want, they did not want the truth he came to espouse. They did not want theology. They did not want the gospel. They really didn't even want him. They wanted what he could do for them. They wanted what he could do for them. Well, in verse 35, against all of that, against their desire to fill their stomachs with bread, he looks at them and he says, you know what? I... I am the bread of life. You eat the rye or the wheat or the pumpernickel, you're still going to be hungry tomorrow. But he who eats from me will never hunger. He who drinks from me will never thirst. I am the bread of life. Now that, we take that for granted because we've heard it so often. Put it in its original context. Now imagine someone comes to you this week. Imagine someone comes to you and says, I am the bread of life. What's your reaction going to be? Well, you know, back up a few paces, look the other way and such. Well, that's what the people were doing. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And they said, hold the phone here. They knew about bread that came from heaven. It was a long time ago when it was called manna. They knew the illustration he was giving by that very statement. And yet they didn't know what to make of it. Well, for Jesus' purpose, again, he's contrasting the physical hunger that the people had, that the people knew about, with the spiritual hunger that they didn't know they had that they weren't prioritizing, that they weren't even thinking about. You know, just as the Israelites, back after the time of the Exodus, just as they truly needed some physical material food to eat, just as they truly needed manna that came from heaven, just as they truly needed that, God is looking in the eyes of the Israelites of his day and saying, you need something beyond that as well. You need spiritual manna. And he who stands before you is it. That's what he's telling them. But they didn't want it. And they didn't want him. Let's look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In the previous verses, Jesus had made the promise that those who came to him would not know spiritual hunger again. Now, the people didn't know what to make of that. That sounded pretty deep, pretty complex. They didn't know what that really meant. But then he ups the ante here in verse 37. He makes an additional promise. He says, not only are those who come to me never going to be hungry again, but those who come to me, I am never going to cast out. He's making promise upon promise as this text goes on. Now, again, some folks didn't realize that they were starving, spiritually speaking. Most people don't. As an aside, most people are totally unaware. Perhaps even some of us are unaware of just the degree to which we are spiritually starving or by which our children may be spiritually starving. We don't totally understand the degree of the world around us. Even Christianized culture is spiritually anemic. We don't understand that. But Jesus looked at the folks and he knew their problem. 
And he knew what the consequences of that problem would be. He saw people spiritually wasting away. Now for some, that's our problem. That we're spiritually wasting away, even in the midst of all the spiritual bread that God has given us. Now others have a different concern. Others have a different concern. They may realize their spiritual need. And some of us may be in that boat. We understand our spiritual need. We may even turn to Jesus to fill that need. Rightfully so. So we've got some important things right. And yet, sometimes we worry that Jesus, that he's just on the verge of telling us to get lost. Some of us have done things that we would not name to our closest friends. And because we know ourselves, sometimes our concern is that God knows us too. And because of what he knows of us, we have got to be right on the line of him just telling us to get lost. Some worry that Jesus will fall out of love with them. Tomorrow when they mess up. Tomorrow when they do something wrong. If that's you, I'd be encouraged. That's not the way this works. That's not the way the gospel works. And shame on those institutions that, that teach otherwise. You know, some very large institutions with crosses out front. Some very large institutions teach that Christ's relationship with a believer is only solid when that believer tries hard enough. Have you ever been told that or taught that by someone? That your relationship with God, your relationship with your maker is only as good as how good you've been. That that relationship is only solid as long as you're trying hard enough, that you've done what's right, that you've confessed every last thing. There are many who believe that their relationship with Christ, their relationship with God, their future, their hope, their salvation hinges on how good they are today and tomorrow. And should they mess up, in some especially grand way, I guess, that they could lose it all in a heartbeat. Some believe that. Roman Catholicism makes a difference between what we call venial and mortal sins. And it says if you commit a mortal sin, and there's a lot of them, Look up the list. You commit a mortal sin that if you were to die in that very last minute, you'll be condemned. In other words, no matter what you believe, no matter what you believe about Jesus, if you commit a mortal sin, that sin has more power to condemn you than your belief has to save you. There is a theology that teaches such a thing. That is not what we see in God's Word. Some believe that the only way to save yourself if you've committed a mortal sin is to seek absolution, to do works of penance. And after you've received this absolution, after you've done this penance, you're theoretically in good shape, at least until your next mortal sin. At that point, the whole process may be repeated. That's not the teaching of Scripture. That's what happens when men in tall, pointy hats rely on tradition and come up with doctrines you don't find in the book and then elevate those doctrines alongside what you do find in the book. But that's not what you see, and there's consequences of that sort of bad theology. And one of the consequences is this, that believers who believe such a thing, such a false thing, can never have a true ongoing sense of assurance, can never really believe what we hold to as the assurance of pardon, that we are forgiven, and that won't change when I mess up tomorrow. That he who started a good work in me will finish it. Many don't have that level of confidence because they've learned from the wrong sources. And because of that, any confidence they do have, any assurance they do have, it's a fleeting thing perpetually married to their own efforts to keep it. Well, for those who may wonder if God's going to love you tomorrow, verse 37, Jesus declares this. He says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't say, well, those who come to me, I will not cast out unless... 
unless they do one of these a thousand different things tomorrow, in which case they're on their own. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. No contingencies, no qualifiers, no escape clauses here. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. All. All means all. All will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. There's nothing that can cause me to throw them away. There's nothing that can rip them from my hands. They are mine, and I am theirs. Let's build on that statement as we look at verse 38 and 39. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me. Of all he has given me, I would lose nothing. Not a one, not a soul, but will raise him up on the last day. You know, in theology, we have a term that we call the divine prerogative. The divine prerogative. Now, the divine prerogative is a fancy way of saying this. That God means God. That God has the volition to do what God wants to do. It's in the job description of being God that the sole prerogative over all that you've made belongs to you. That's something that's just, it's not even just Reformed or Presbyterian. That's just healthy scriptural teaching. That's just what we find in the book, the divine prerogative. God does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. Now, imagine if God were a tyrant or a brute. If that were the case, wow, the divine prerogative would be a dreadful a dreadful thing. If God were a tyrant, if God were a brood, we would we'd all be in trouble. I don't think we would have lasted to this day. But God is not a tyrant. And in fact, his will for us couldn't be more encouraging. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose none, but will raise it up at the last day. In spite of what fallen humanity has done, in spite of what you've done, in spite of what I've done, in spite of all that God knows about what we've done in the past, all we might yet do in the present, all the times we might break His laws, all the iniquity built up in our hearts, in spite of all that, God determined to save us. And He did so at the cost of that which was most precious to Himself, His own Son's blood. This is the will of the Father, and it was not a fleeting will. It was a costly will. What it cost God to fulfill this will should not be understated or is not insignificant. Now, if you're keeping track of the promises that Jesus has declared in these verses, in, in verse 37, he said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then in verse 39, he says, All that he has given me, I will lose none. You hear that there's two things. First, all the Father gives me will come to me. Not might come to me, not I hope they come to me, nothing like that. All the Father gives me will period, end stop, will come to me. And then he says, of all that he has given me, I'm going to lose none. Every aspect of this, he's saying, are in our hands, the hands of a triune God, and will not change or will not fade away. Again, no contingencies here, no qualifiers, no escape clauses. God's express manifest will here is that of all given to the Son, none will be lost. And that remains true even if you mess up tomorrow. We've said this before, but our God is faithful even when we are faithless. And so those who the Father has given to the Son will remain in the Son's hand, irrespective of their future flaws and failing. That's not an encouragement to go on sinning, obviously not. That's not an incitement to just live as you want, no. But it is good to know that when and if we do sin, or when we sin, that that doesn't cause us to springboard out of God's grace. 
doesn't cause us to leave his hand. Now, with that said, all this leads up to or begs the question, all right, if all that God the Father has given to the Son will come to him, and if all the Son has, he will hold on to, it begs the question, what does it mean to be given to the Son? In order to enter into this process, it appears that we need to be given to the Son. What does that entail? Well, let's look at verse 40 as we consider this further. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right, verse 40, we see, those who are given to Jesus are those who believe in Jesus. There's a one-to-one relationship. Those who are given to Jesus are those who believe in him. And apparently everyone who has this belief also has everlasting life. What kind of belief are we talking about? What kind of belief do you have to have? Let's say you're looking at yourself, your children, your friends, your neighbors. What kind of belief is appropriate or necessary? What kind of belief is the guarantee that we see here? Well, there are all sorts of belief. The devil has a form of belief in Jesus. He believes Jesus exists. He's got that much right. You know, Judas... Judas believed not only in Jesus' existence, Judas undoubtedly nodded his head at a lot that Jesus had to say over the years they were together. Judas even believed some of Jesus' teachings. But here's the thing, you're not going to meet him in heaven. You're not going to meet him on heaven on the basis that he believed Jesus existed and on the basis that he nodded his head at something that Jesus had to say. Belief in Jesus' existence or even selectively believing his teachings is not the sort of belief that verse 40 is talking about. This may be a a familiar analogy to you, but I can believe, for example, in a jet airplane. I can believe in a jet airplane in the sense that I believe it exists. I know it exists. Absolutely, jet airplanes exist. I can even recognize what a jet airplane does. In a sense, you could say that I believe in jet airplanes. If you asked me to write an essay on jet airplanes, I mean, I'm, I'm no aerospace engineer here, but I suppose I could put something together that talks about roughly what they do and, and roughly how it's accomplished and the like. I've got some knowledge, some basis of experience, some uh, faith in, in what the airplane is itself and what purpose it serves. And yet, does that necessarily mean that I trust, trust in such a plane? Does that mean I'm going to get on board one? So, I mean, I'm going to fly in one, irrespective of what I believe about it. Well, I trust it enough to get in it and let me take me skyward. Well, me personally, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Some do. They don't fly. Why? Is it because they don't believe in the planes? They don't believe that they can fly? Well, not necessarily. It's just that they don't trust it. Intellectually, cognitively, they understand. They can even explain the science. They can even write it all down. You could have someone who will never get on a plane explain planes to you better than you understand it as one who does get on the plane. The the issue is not our cognitive awareness, understanding, recognition about the plane itself. It's our willingness and our trust to fly in it. This is a base analogy, and yet it points to the greater truth. All belief is not belief. Many believe or profess in Jesus, but they define him in very different ways, and the belief such as they have it is not one in which they trust in him. It is a different thing. Many believe in the existence of Jesus. Many believe in the teachings, or at least some of the teachings of Jesus, but far fewer genuinely trust in his divine person and work to save them. Far, far fewer. And here's the thing. Sometimes, even in church settings, it can be hard to tell who believes what. It can be hard to tell who just believes in the basic sense of believing something about Jesus, something about the Word, something about what He said. 
enough to want to benefit from the social opportunities that flow from being part of the congregation. But there's a difference between that level of belief and one who trusts in this Jesus. One who, who yokes their future now and down the road unto him. And many are deluded. And some churches aren't helping the matter by never highlighting these distinctions. Many are deluded. And should you ever encounter such a one? Should these same deluded folks even seem to depart from the faith? It might even cause you to think that such and such a person, boy, they once believed and now they don't. They must have lost their salvation. You might even think that, but here's the thing. You can't lose what you never had. Let's dive into that a little bit further here. Let's look at verses 41 through 44. Verse 41. And then the Jews complained about him. I'll bet they did. Everything he was saying, they didn't like. Some of us might not like it this morning. The Jews, in their case, they complained about him. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They were refuting his person and his work. And Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur amongst yourselves. He says, I'm hearing what you're saying. He says, keep it down. Don't murmur amongst yourself. And then he says this. He says, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless my Father who is in heaven draws him to me. And I will raise such a one up on the last day. You know, verse 41, something fascinating was happening. This always gets my attention whenever I see it. There you have this moment, this rare moment in time where the God of all creation, the God who fashioned the cosmos, everything we see out there, the God with attention span to tiny creatures and big creatures, to you, to me, the God of all the universe, he's standing before that which he has made. He's looking people in the eyes. They could have reached out and touched God. They could have hugged God, shook his hand. They were looking at God in the eyes or hearing the words of God in their ears. Not through some intermediary. God himself was right in front of them. And yet, even though they were three feet away from God, hearing him teach, look him in the eyes, they still rejected him. What's more, they hated him. Man alive, if there's nothing else that teaches you about the total depravity of man, apart from God starting a work in that individual's heart, it should be this. People like you and I could look at God in the eye and yet reject him. The greatest theological teacher, who was also the source of all theology, was right in front of them, and yet we see in these verses that they complained about him. Now, think about this. What was their problem? What was their, what was their problem? Were, were they just stupid? I used to think that when I was younger. I used to just figure these were like, cognitively speaking, these people didn't have it all put together. And that had the effect of making me feel better about myself, because I figured I did. I thought, well, they reject him. You know, they're just stupid people. But me, I've got it figured out. Which had the net effect of causing me to be pretty happy with myself. But that's not the case. That's not the case. The fact that one man in the crowd may have believed Jesus and another didn't did not suggest that the first man was somehow smarter or wiser than the other one. See, if Christianity, if all this is is an ideology, then that might be true. If all this is is an ideology or philosophy, then that might be true. If all this is is just a belief system based on facts and data, then I suppose the smart people probably would be the ones to figure it out. But that's not the case. And some of the smartest people in the room might miss it. Might miss it. 
If Christianity is just a set of propositional truths, then to become a Christian, all you'd have to do is give those truths your assent. But that's not the way this works. In verse 43, Jesus hears the murmuring and complaining of those that he has just been teaching. And he says that the fact that you are complaining, the fact that you're complaining, is not because you're not smart, not because you're unwilling to believe. He looked at him and he said the equivalent of this. He says, it's because you're unable. It's because you're unable. No one can come to me unless my Father draws him. Period. Full stop. No one can come to me unless my Father draws him. Now we're getting down to the brass tacks. A few moments ago we talked about the divine prerogative. That God is God. God does what God wants to do. And all the outcomes of the world around us, even when we don't understand it and even when we don't like it, flow from his decretal will. I knew a man in my first church who was worried about his salvation. He had been baptized. He had grown up in the church. He didn't know if he was actually saved, and that weighed upon him. And so he asked me, he says, all right, I've heard it a thousand times, but tell me, tell me once again, how does a man get saved? How does someone get saved? Well, here's the thing. It all starts with the statement we see in verse 44. No one can come to me. No one can be saved. No one has eternal hope. No one has an eternal future. No one can come to me. Unless first, preemptively, ahead of that, ahead of his coming to me, no one can come to me unless my Father draws him. Draws him to myself. See, at one point, we were all lost. We were all lost. I had in the seminary, I had a southern professor who played baseball in Alabama, and he would say folksy things. He'd say, at one point, we were all lost ball in the high weeds. At one point, we were all lost balls in the high weeds. At one point, we were all lost. At one point, we were all enemies of the cross. At one point, we were all enemies of the throne. That was the state of fallen man. That was the effect of the fall, which cannot be minimized. At one point, we were lost. But then, for reasons that are his own, out of a volition derived from his own will, God determined that some would be saved. For every Cain that justly deserved death, there was an Abel. For every Esau that God hated, there was a Jacob that he loved. I don't know if it was always a one-to-one relationship throughout time, but you catch my drift. That some God has placed his saving love upon, and some he hasn't. Who and how and why, that's his volition, his choice. I don't fully understand it, and I don't always like it. But I know it to be true. I know it to be true. In any case, once God is determined to save such a one, what happens next? What happens? Well, in his time of his volition... God changes the heart of a man or a woman. He changes a heart. Can that happen when you're an infant? Sure. Can it happen when you're 80? Sure. When and why and how he does it, that's up to him. But at some point, he did it. For some of us, we have a pretty good sense of when it happened. For others, we just don't know. For others, it hasn't happened yet. But in God's time, his own volition, he reaches down into the human heart, takes a heart of stone, turns it to a heart of flesh. That heart is then enabled and persuaded to turn to God, to turn to Christ in a way that it otherwise never would. If there's people in your life that you love dearly and yet don't lay hold of this, it may well be that this issue is at the root. The hope, though, the encouragement is that God's still in the business of saving And even those hearts that have not yet been changed, God is still capable and willing to do so. And he still responds to prayer. God still responds to prayer for those that we love. 
So pray. Pray. Remember the mother of Augustine. She prayed, she prayed, she prayed. Her name was Monica. What's the statement that's often applied to her? A son of many prayers is seldom lost. She prayed for Augustine. His heart was changed. Spirit entered in. Quickened that heart. Made it alive. And Augustine lived a life of faith thereafter. But the prerequisite of that is that God chooses, God elects, God sends a spirit, God saves such a man by regenerating that heart. And once that heart is regenerated, it can do what it never previously could. It can do what it never previously could. Now, if all that's true, if God does this, if he saves a man, changes the heart, sends the spirit to live in such a man's heart, is it possible for that man to then mess it all up? Is it possible for that man to undo all of that that God has done, all the election and choosing and regeneration? Is it possible for you or I to just fumble that away through some error, some mistake on our part? Can a man be born again only to die once more? And then perhaps have to be born again after that. Can that happen? Well, if so, I haven't found it in the Bible yet. That's not a scriptural idea. Man cannot be ripped from Christ's hands. There's no enemy that can take us from Christ's hands. And what's more, once you're in his hands, you can't jump out either. Once you're in God's hands, Christ's arms, his everlasting arms, what's the possibility that you're going to mess up in such a way as to jump out of his arms in such a way that he's trying to reach out from you and can't grab you? None. That's not an option. We can't mess up so badly tomorrow that God won't still love us. If it was true of David, given all that he did, that's true for us. It's true for us. In John 10, 28, Jesus put it this way. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's not an option. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul said we can be confident. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8, Paul goes on to say, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Do you see even a hint of equivocation in these verses? Paul prefaced his verses by saying, I am sure of this. I am sure of this. He says, take it to the bank. Salvation is not so fickle a thing that someone can take it from you or that you're bound to lose it five minutes after you walk out this door. Now, are there verses that seem to imply that some who have formerly professed Jesus have fallen away? There are verses that seem to suggest that some who have made professions are not saved. Yes, that's true, absolutely. But as to those who appear to have fallen away, remember this, that what a man or woman professes with their lips is not the same thing as what they trust in with their heart. And many professions, many professions do not accompany a true change in their nature. Many don't. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? We talked about this a few weeks ago. What did he say in Matthew 7? He said, many are going to come to me on that day who are deluded in this fashion. Many will have a profession. Many will say, I believed in you, Jesus, in the sense of believing you existed and the like. And yet, comparatively few have trusted in him with their, their past, present, and the future. Jesus refers to those false professions in Matthew 7. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. To those who faith and words didn't match up. Jesus knew that the words of one's lips can hide, can mask a stony heart. Dear heavens, if that's the case, if you're worried about that with regards to your own soul. Linger on this. 
Don't delude yourself into thinking that just by virtue of attending church or by virtue of a profession you made or by virtue of being baptized or by virtue of writing something in your Bible or by virtue of giving or what have you, don't delude yourself into thinking that that profession or even those works are the hinge on which salvation turns. Be introspective enough to consider these things in light of Scripture. Such ones, the Apostle John, John 1, said, Such ones, they went out from us, they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. Some are deluded, but here's the thing. God knows those who are His. And if God has started a work in you, He will bring it to fruition. Any right understanding of these issues, any right understanding of the doctrine of regeneration will teach that if you really have been born again, if you really are a new creation in Christ, you will remain so all your days. Absolutely. He who began a good work in you will finish it. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This morning, if you are Christ, this morning if God has done this work, this morning if sometime in the past or recent past even, God has changed your heart, has sent His Spirit, if God has done so, then you can be absolutely confident about your eternal hope and salvation. Absolutely confident. Let nothing take that from your hands. At the same time, as we said earlier, there are still those that we love dearly, who do not have this saving faith. But the good news is, as long as there's breath in our lungs, there's yet opportunity for God to work. And God may use you to be the ministers, the means by which others hear and are saved, by which a heart of stone is pierced by a ray of light. God is in the kingdom business. He's in the salvation business. That business continues even this day. Let's pray. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. If today's sermon's been helpful or encouraging for you, then check back tomorrow for another study of God's Word. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive notifications when our next sermon is available.